This morning, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to have a uh, parable. We're going to study a, uh, a, pardon me, a proverb, but we're going to introduce the proverb with a parable. In all of Scripture, these are two of the most powerful teaching devices because the meaning doesn't immediately reveal itself. We have to think about the proverb. We have to think about the parable. And so the truth is discovered rather than told. And truth discovered is always more powerful than truth told because we own it. It's our truth. We discovered it. And so the proverbs and the parables combine those two, that powerful teaching element. So this morning, I want to tell a modern-day parable to introduce an ancient proverb. Pray with me. Lord, may the meditations of our heart and the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. For as long as I can remember, the summers, my parents used to take me to a little town called Swanville, Maine. Now, most people have never heard of Swanville. It's uh, outside of the fishing city on the main coast, uh, Belfast. Uh, and so you, you, you go out of Belfast, you go east and north on Highway 141, <laughs> Highway Road 141, and for the first five or so miles, it was paved, and then the pavement ended, and you were traveling on a gravel, gravel road. And you went probably another five or ten miles uh, on that gravel road. I don't remember the exact miles. It was a long time ago, but... Uh, you travel on that gravel road through the, the thick woods, the piney woods with uh, uh, the, the beautiful trees. And, and then suddenly you came to an opening in the trees, and you could see the, the sky again. And, and the first thing you came to was Willard Ellis's chicken house. Willard raised chickens for Penobscot poultry. And it was a two-story building, big, long thing, and he would have literally thousands of chickens that they would bring in, little chicks, and he would raise them until they were poultry size to, to be broiled. You could broil them in your kitchen, or you see them in the stores, the little things going around. And so uh, uh, Penobscot Poultry hired Willard to uh, raise those chickens. Willard lived for a little bit further down the road from the chicken house, uh, and uh, he had his wife, Bibi there, and two sons, Jackie and Arthur. And then they had two twins, two little kids, twins, and I suppose they had names, but everybody just called them brother and sister, or in Maine, brother and sister. And, uh, so, and Willard had some milk cows, and of course they kept some laying hens, and he had a hog, and he had a, a workhorse named Jerry, and he had an old tractor that he made from a, a, a truck. You know, you cut them down and, so they could maneuver better. And he had this old tractor and a mowing machine. He could pull behind the tractor, and he and Jackie could mow hay. So that was about the extent of their farm. And, uh, and then you f go further down the road, uh, down a hill, and you cross a little brook, a little bridge with a stream running under it. And then uh, you came to my Uncle Charlie's property, on uh, Uncle Charlie and Aunt LaVon. LaVon was my dad's sister, and they had no kids, uh, so I was their summer child, and usually that worked out pretty well, but uh, sometimes not so well. But uh, Charlie, like Willard, he had some milk cows and, uh, and a, a workhorse named Dahl, and he had his truck, and he had a hay rake uh, that he could rake the, the hay with, and, and uh, so uh, then you went on past Charlie's uh, property, and you went across the Big Brook Bridge. 
the, that's what bordered uh, Charlie's property, Charlie and Levon's property. So that big brook, there was a culvert under the road. You could walk under the road through that big culvert that went down there because in the winter that thing really got uh, flowing fast. And so you went on across the Big Brook Bridge, and then if you followed the road, you went, made a right turn, and Pete Clark and his wife Diane lived over there. And Diane was sort of a celebrity because she was from England. Uh, Pete met her during World War II when he was over stationed in England and married her, brought her back, and of course she had that British accent and had lived in another part of the world. And in Swanville, that was really big stuff. And uh, Pete also raised chickens for Penobscot poultry. And, uh, and he had a big wagon and, and a hay rake, and, but, but he didn't keep a lot of other animals. So Pete was sort of a guy, he had a, a, a disability check that he got every month from the government from his war year, so he didn't really need to do much. The chickens. Now, if instead of taking that right turn and going by Pete's farm, there was another road, it was more like a driveway, but it was a road that went up this very steep hill. And if you went up that hill, you went to Ray Roberts' farm. Uh, Ray and Mildred lived up there, and, and uh, uh, Ray was really the only real farmer in Swanville. He had a big dairy herd and uh, a, a very lot of property. And on the back of his property, he had a, a little lake. It was Toddy Pond, it was called. And uh, it was a beautiful, beautiful thing on the back of that uh, lake uh, and, uh, property. And there was an island out kind of in the middle of that uh, little lake. And uh, people used to go to Ray's farm because uh, he had a lot of blueberry bushes there and lots and lots of property where he could graze his cows and everything. And uh, Ray had a truck and a wagon, but the thing Ray had was a John Deere tractor. It was the only real tractor we had. Charlie, too, had one of those old truck uh, things that he had made tractors that he made from one of his trucks. And, and, uh, but Ray had a real tractor, John Deere. And that John Deere had a cutter bar on the side of it so that one man could drive the tractor and cut hay at the same time. And that was really a great deal. So that was the, sort of the, the community there. And uh, uh, so uh, Willard and Jackie would mow hay with uh, the tractor and the mowing machine. And and Ray would mow hay, and uh, everybody had fields, and nobody really cared what field the hay came from. So they would mow the hay, and then uh, uh, Arthur would take Charlie's hay rake and his workhorse, Dahl, uh, uh, Jerry, and I would take Charlie's workhorse named Dahl and, and uh, Pete's hay rake. And so Arthur and I would rake the hay up. And then later in the year, we, would, we did this two or three times a summer. Everybody would get together with the wagons and the trucks and whatever we had, and, and we would all go out in the fields and load that hay onto the things and fill everybody's barn with hay. It was just a community thing. All that mattered was didn't, didn't matter where the hay came from, who cut it, who raked it. We all made sure everybody's barn was full. Same with the woodshed. We'd all go out in the, in the forest, in the woods, and we'd cut down trees or cut down what had fallen down and, and saw it up into uh, stove lengths and chop it, and everybody's woodshed was full. And you could just see uh, maybe Ray would be out in Charlie's woodshed filling it up, and just whoever happened to be available on a day. And, and everybody worked together to do everything, and that was the community. 
Well, one summer, I guess I was about 10, Arthur and I. Arthur and I were summer best friends. And this one summer, Arthur got a pup tent from the Sears Roebuck catalog. And we wanted to go camping. We slept out in the backyard a few times, but that wasn't real frontier camping. So we asked Charlie and Willard if they would do chores on a Wednesday night and a Thursday morning so that Arthur and I could take off after the morning milking and go up to Ray's Island and spend the night in Arthur's pup tent on Ray's Lake on that island. And they both said, yeah, we'll do that. You guys go ahead. So we got our little meal, potatoes and eggs and stuff, and we packed all that up. We got our blankets and the pup tent, and we hiked up the hill to Ray's uh, farm and told Mildred you had to check in and check out of Ray's farm because of all the people that would come up there. And so we said we're going to go out to the island, and he gave us permission, and we uh, went down to the lake, down to the little lake, and we got the rowboat and uh, headed out for the island. Now, the rowboat had a particular rule. One guy rowed, the other guy bailed because the thing leaked like a sieve. So Arthur, one of us, rowed out, and the other thing. We spent the night out there. We just had a wonderful swimming and fishing. We just had a wonderful time. And the next morning, we had to be back by noon. So we got up pretty early and made our little breakfast and got in the boat and rowed and bailed and got back. As we were getting near the shore, we saw some people standing down where you docked the boat. It looked like two men, two adults and a kid. As we got closer, we could see it looked like a mom and dad and a little kid. So we uh, pulled the boat up and, uh, and uh, talked with them, met them, and told them the rules. You know, you got to row and bail. And we helped them load the stuff of the boat and pushed it off and waved goodbye. And then we headed up the path. You went up, there's a footpath up a little ways. And then it was uh, two rows where a car could drive down there. So Arthur and I went up the thing. And when we got up to the top of the thing, what we saw was a Chrysler Imperial. A 1953 Chrysler Imperial with Connecticut license plates. Now, everybody, every kid knew everybody in Connecticut was rich. And these people not only were from Connecticut, they drove a brand new Chrysler Imperial. And we thought, what, what would it be like to sit behind the wheel of a car like that? And we'd seen pictures of it. We'd never seen a car like that. So we decided, we took turns. You know, Arthur got in and sat behind him and did that kind of thing. And then I did. And then one of us, I don't know which one, uh, Arthur would blame me, I would blame Arthur, but we noticed a, a woman's purse on the floor over on the passenger side. And we thought, I wonder how much rich people from Connecticut who drive a brand new Chrysler Imperial, how much money do you think they carry around? Well, we decided to check it out. So I opened the purse. You never saw so much money in one place in your whole life. There had to be $50 in there. And so we put it all back. And then one of us noticed a change purse. And so, well, I bet they have a lot of change. So we checked in there, and we looked at a whole bunch of quarters and dimes and nickels. And man, these people are rich. So we started to put that back, and we thought, People that rich would never miss two quarters. If we each took a quarter, they wouldn't miss it. Now, the reason we wanted a quarter is you could get out of the general store in Swanville, and you could get a fudgesicle for a nickel. But if you had a quarter, you could get six fudgesicles in a package. 
And we thought how great, and you'd have to eat them real fast because they melt. And we thought, what a wonderful, get a six foot chickles and just eat those things. Man, that would be terrific. So we decided it was worth it. We took, each took a quarter, put everything back, closed the doors. We headed up the path, up the little uh, track there. And you would have thought we were Al Capone and Jesse James, and we had just robbed Fort Knox. I mean, we were giggling. We were laughing. It was just wow. But then we kind of get out of the woods there, and up in a ray, the first hayfield, and it was sort of an uphill thing, and the sun was coming up, and it was getting hot. <sighs> you know, those quarters were really getting heavy. I, I felt it. I said something to Arthur. I said, I think we should have done that. And he said, I don't know. I, so we kept walking. And we got down to Ray's house and talked to Mildred. And she said, are you boys okay? You seem kind of quiet. And we said, yeah, we're okay. We were convinced she could see right, see right through our pants pocket into those quarters. And, uh, but we said we were fine. And we took off and went down the hill and uh, got back on the road. And we're going across the Big Brook Bridge. And we just stopped there and talked about those quarters again. We didn't want them. We just felt terrible that we had done that. But we couldn't go back. And, and we were convinced if we had them, they were had to be a different color or something, and somebody would have to know they were stolen. So we just threw them into the brook, into the big brook, and headed across the bridge. But we actually, crossing the big brook bridge that day, we crossed two bridges. We crossed the bridge across the creek, across the brook. But we also crossed a bridge where it occurred to me that my friend Arthur was a thief. And even worse, my friend Arthur knew that his friend Sidney was a thief. And we sort of entered a new world, like we're bad people. You know, we did something terrible, and we couldn't do anything about it. We did throw the quarters away. Well, we got to the driveway, and Arthur headed on up the hill to his house, and I went in to see what Charlie had left for me to do. And... Uh, he wanted me to go out and rake the, the, the way back field, we call it. It was the last field back there, and it butted up against Pete's property. And so I harnessed Doll up, and we rode on out to the field and hooked the rake up and spent the afternoon raking hay. And you could see where the sun was. It was getting near, in Maine, they call it supper time. And uh, so I unhooked the rake and got up on Doll's back, and we headed back in. When I got to the dooryard, I noticed something that normally I guess wouldn't think was unusual, but... Charlie's truck was in the driveway, it made sense, but parked next to it was Pete's Chevy, uh, uh, yeah, uh, not Pete, uh, Willard's Chevy, <laughs> and next to that was Ray's John Deere, and I thought, why, why are those guys here at supper time? I mean, you don't go visiting at supper time, and I began to get a little funny feeling about it, and then my Aunt LaVon came out of the house and said, you get in the house, I'll take care of Doll, and I knew something was going on. So I walked in the house, in the kitchen, and, and uh, uh, Willard was sitting back here, and Arthur was on this side of the table. Uh, Ray was sitting down next to the door on the end of the table, and my Uncle Charlie was leaning against the wood box over by the stove, and there was an empty chair at the other head of the table. 
and it looked a lot like an electric chair to me at that point. So he just nodded at the chair. Charlie didn't say a lot. He just used a lot of nodding, and he nodded at the chair, and I knew I better sit down. So I sat down, and Charlie said, Boys, Ray tells me he had some company up on his property this morning. They come up missing a couple of quarters. You boys know anything about them quarters? Now, I figured if I told the truth, they would just kill me. If I lied and they found out the truth, they'd torture me and then kill me. So I figured, take the best option. I just said, yes, I took one. And then Willard said, Arthur. And Arthur said, I took the other one. Ray stood up. Charlie reached in his pocket, took out a quarter, gave it to Ray. Willard took out two dimes and a nickel, gave it to Ray. Ray walked out and let the screen door slap behind him. Next thing we heard was his John Deere tractor pop, 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 popping up the hill. And Willard, Willard said to Arthur, you get your mm out in the car, and you wait till I come out there. And he and Charlie stood on the porch. I could see him through the window. They talked for a while. And uh, I could hear Willard's car start up and hear the gravel under his, crunching under his wheels as he drove out of the driveway and on up the hill. And Charlie came back into the kitchen, and he just nodded at the other kitchen door. The other kitchen door led two steps down into the woodshed. And we had just been out cutting wood a few days earlier, and there was a white birch limb, probably that long, maybe twice the size of my thumb. At that moment, it looked about the size of my arm. Charlie picked that up because there's a ritual that goes on or used to go on in the, when a young guy, when a kid did something wrong. It was called applying the Board of Education to the Seat of Learning. And so he took that stick in his hand, and uh, I knew what he was going to do. And there was a general rule that worked for kids. The spank E knew that the goal of the spanker was to inflict pain. So the smart spanky made sure that the spanker understood that he was really doing a good job and he could quit any time he wanted. So you jump up and down and scream and yell, no, no, no. You've, some of you have seen that or done it. And uh, uh, my dad used to call it the shillelagh jig. And Charlie was really putting it on me. But you know, I could tell from Charlie's expression, the look in his eye, that this wasn't a man teaching a boy a lesson. This was an older man teaching a younger man about life. And even though it's one of the worst whoopings I ever got, I didn't make a sound. I figured I needed to take it like a man. When he was finished, he said, you get out there, milk them cows, and you get upstairs. I don't want to see you till breakfast, which was fine with me. And I was so ashamed, I didn't want to see anybody. Came down the next morning, we did the milking. Charlie went off, he, he drove, his, he drove a, a truck. He helped maintain the county roads, the gravel roads there in the summer. And in the winter, he plowed the roads. So he, he was gone during the day. But he would always give me jobs to do before he left. And he wanted me to go weed the garden. So I was up weeding the garden, and about halfway up a row of peas when a rock hit the ground next to me. And I looked up, and there was Arthur. Because 
Willard's garden was connected to Charlie's garden. And we weren't supposed to talk to each other for a week, not supposed to see. But this was, we had serious business to talk about. So we decided we could break that rule. We broke every other rule. Why not that one? So I walked up and met Arthur, and he asked me if I got a whooping. I said, yeah, man, one of the worst whoopings I ever got. How about you? Yeah. So we decided we needed to check each other's scars out. And thinking about it, kind of two 10-year-old boys standing out there checking each other's behinds out in the middle of a field, kind of strange now. But then it seemed very appropriate to see, you know, who got it worst. Well, life went on through the summer. We weren't allowed to go on Ray's property unless we were working there. He banned us for the summer. But other than that, life went on, and the end of summer came, and uh, it was about two days before my parents came to pick me up to take me back to Portland for uh, school for the year. And my aunt and I were cleaning out the hen house, putting fresh sawdust on the floor, and she was putting new hay in the, in the uh, nests, and I was filling the wheelbarrow with sawdust, and she was standing behind me, and, and she just spoke these words. It was, I couldn't tell if she was talking to me or just talking. And she said, life's hard here. None of us has enough to make it alone. We need each other. If I need to borrow something, I just go take it. I don't have to ask. Don't have to tell them I brought it back. It's just the way it is. Somebody needs to borrow something from me, they just come and do it. If it's dirty, I clean it. If it's broke, I fix it. If it's got a tank, I fill it. If it's got a stomach, I feed it. They know if I borrow something, I'm going to bring it back right. Same with them. If I run out of grain before the grain man comes, I can go to anybody's barn and take what I need. When the gray man comes, I put it back. That's how life has to work here. But the only way it works is if people trust each other. If you lose your good name, you just can't live here. And she turned and walked out. My parents came and picked me up, and life went on. And Swanville was long ago and far away. But you know, every once in a while, Swanville comes back. Came back when Jeanette and I bought our first house. And we sat at the closing of this big stack of paper. We had to sign so many pieces of paper. And I thought to myself, now I get it. I understand life and how it works. But I thought, how sad that the only way these people can keep me from stealing their house is to have my name on all those papers. And the only way we're protected from those people stealing our house is that they have our name on all, those, on all their papers because we can't trust each other. And it just seemed that sad way that life has to work. And, and other times when you see people that just don't seem to get along and they don't trust each other. Uh, well, it came up again recently in my mind when I read a proverb, Proverbs 22.1. Interesting proverb. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, two lines, like most proverbs, and they are what's called synonymous or equivalent parallelism, the way the two lines work together. They say almost the same thing, but they're just enough different so you have to think about it. And both lines have a point of comparison, both of the lines in this parable. 
Uh, let me read it for you. A good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. Now, both lines have a something to be compared with, something very valuable. The first line is great riches. That's the point of comparison. You're going to compare something with great riches. The second line is silver or gold. That's a very high standard. When you think about it, even in the Bible, when you think about silver and gold and great riches, it's uh, something that brings esteem to people. Something that's highly prized and helpful. It's a sign of wisdom. People who have great wealth and silver and gold, it gives them pleasure. It gives them power and influence. They can get things and do things that they couldn't do if they didn't have wealth and silver and gold. It brings security and peace of mind. This is all in Proverbs. It says these great things about wealth and silver and gold. Uh, Job and Abraham and, and Jacob all saw this as God's sign of approval, that they had great wealth. So this point of comparison in these two lines, great wealth and silver and gold, very, very high standard. And then what's compared to those in the first line, what's compared to uh, great riches is a good name. And what's compared to silver and gold in the second line is esteem or a good reputation. So you have a point of comparison, you have something that's compared with it, and then you have a particular kind of comparison. In the first line, one thing is more desirable than the other. Here you have great wealth, here you have a good name, and the proverb says one is more desirable than the other. Second line, same thing, you have, you have esteem or a good reputation being compared with silver and gold, and one of them is better than the other. And here's where it gets a little bit tricky. Listen to what Solomon says as he compares these things. The first line, he says, a good name is more desirable than great wealth. The second line, he says, to be esteemed is better than silver and gold. Now, what makes this a proverb is not that it's hard to understand what he's saying. It's pretty obvious. He actually said, a good name is more desirable than great riches, and to be esteemed is better than silver or gold. What makes this a proverb is the question, is that true? On its face, it seems almost silly to say, I would rather have a good name than great wealth. I would rather have a good reputation than silver and gold. You say, is that true? Is that true for me? Is that true for you? Well, we're all shined up as good Presbyterians sitting in church on a Sunday morning with our Bibles open. We say, of course it's true. It's in the Bible. Yeah, yeah, it's easy to say that in here. But what about in the rush and the crunch of life? Because the Proverbs weren't written for nice people sitting in church to use. They were written for nice people who sit in church to use when they're out there in the realities of life. So I could tell you, oh yes, of course I believe that. It's in the Bible. I'd rather have a good name than great wealth and good reputation. 
That was put to the test a few years ago. Uh, Jeanette and I were visiting our son, Chris, who happened at that time to be working on a $30 million home in Malibu. And he had done some decorative walls, beautiful, just a beautiful home. And so we walked around, he showed us all this stuff. It was still under construction, but what was done was just beautiful. And then the kicker was, he took us upstairs, and he said, now, I'm going to take you in this room, but I want you to close your eyes. So we closed our eyes, he, took, he guided us in there and put us in this certain place. He said, okay, now open your eyes. And we opened our eyes, and all we could see on three sides was ocean. Uh, floor to ceiling windows, glass. And the way it was positioned on this point in Malibu. And I have to tell you, I stood there thinking, I would love to have a place like this. To, to be able to provide this for my dear Jeanette. I mean, I could live in a box under a bridge, but to have this for her and the fact that she couldn't have that it broke my heart. It just made me almost angry. And I have to tell you, the first thought that sprang to my mind was not this proverb. <laughs> well, at least I got a good name. Got a good reputation. I'll take that down to the real estate office and see what kind of oceanfront property that my good name and my good reputation gets me. So I had to stop and think about that. I had to start and get my priorities right and say, so as we go through life, is this true? That a good name is better than great wealth? And a good reputation is better than silver and gold? More desirable than silver and gold? Well, let me try and experiment with you. Let me try and experiment with you. I'm going to make some noises. Just sounds. Sounds like Perkowitz, Lickflow, Mollywomp. Just noises. Okay, so listen to these Noises, just my vocal cords in my mouth making noises. Okay, listen. Lincoln, Mandela, Hitler, Stalin, Jesus, Buddha. Just noises, like Molly Womp or Lake of Flitz, Trump, Biden. Beethoven, Elvis, Donald Duck, Yosemite Sam, Hanks, Blanchette, Venus, Mars, Hawaii, Aspen, Auschwitz, Treblinka, Mahomes, Hertz, Yellen, Powell, so we can tour the universe, world history, current events, just by making those noises. Because those noises are names. And those names can generate anger, joy, anxiety, peace, confidence. And that's why Israel's great sage instructed his students in Proverbs 22.1, saying, a good name is more to be desired than great wealth. Better than silver and better than gold is a good reputation. But it's not just public names. I could say names like Bill, Susan, Harry, Joan. And all over this room, 
different responses would be attached to those names. It could be that snob who wouldn't take you to the senior prom. Or that creep who broke up your kid's marriage. Or yours. Or it could be that favorite grandchild. Or that dearest of friends who you can say anything to. Your greatest joy, your greatest problem, your greatest struggle. The question I ask is, what signal goes off in people's mind when they hear my name? Different signals with different people, but generally, overall, what happens in a person's mind when they hear your name or my name? See, the point is, the Proverbs message is true because names matter. Names count. Names have power. Names have value. Names bring pleasure, pleasure and pain. Our names define us. So Solomon said, be careful how you use your name. So the first reason this is a proverb is we each have to wrestle with that question, is it true? And the second reason it's a proverb is, so what? What do I do about it? I realize my name is very valuable. My reputation matters to me. It matters to anyone who knows me. But how do I develop a good name? And notice this isn't about not avoiding a bad name. It's about building a good name. Building a solid, a sterling reputation. Now over the years, I used to hire 100 50 college students every summer, my first job out of college. And then over the years, hiring faculty, I have read hundreds, literally hundreds of reference letters. And I can put those reference letters into three broad categories. The first category of reference letters says something like this. If you hire this moron, you deserve to go out of business. Then there's a second one. I had that kid in class or that person worked for me for a number of years and I recognize the name, but I don't remember them. They were sort of invisible. They just showed up. They weren't bad or good. They were vanilla, just there. And then there was a third kind of reference letter that just best summary is, wow, man, if I could get this person, this is terrific. So I say to myself, what kind of reputation am I building? If somebody were to write a, reference, ask, write a reference letter for me, would it be wow? Would it be I just very neutral, very passive? Or would it be bad news? And so Solomon is saying it's not enough just to not have a bad name. It's not enough just to be neutral. A good name is more to be desired than great wealth. Better than silver and better than gold is a good reputation. So the question before the house is, how do I build a good name? How do I build a sterling reputation that's more valuable than silver and gold? Well, first of all, we don't want to do things that damage our name, obviously. We don't lie, cheat, or steal to protect our name. 
But do we go the extra mile to build a good name and a good reputation? The Bible says we shouldn't lie. So we don't lie. But Ephesians teaches us to speak the truth in love. We don't cheat, but Psalm 15.4 commends the person who keeps her oath even when it hurts. We don't steal, but Ephesians says, let him who steals steal no longer, but let him work with his hands so that he has extra to give to those in need. We may not whine about our discomforts and the negatives in life, but Philippians teaches us if there's anything excellent, anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. We may not be self-focused and have a me-first attitude all the time in every conversation, but Philippians teaches us to humbly regard others as better than ourselves. Let each of you look not on your own interests, but also on the interests of others. We may not gossip and take negative views of others because that would give us a bad name, but Colossians says, let your conversation always be with grace. We may not be a bitter person by dwelling on others' hurts and how they've wronged us. But Ephesians says, forgive each other, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. We may not use insulting and degrading speech, but the Bible says, let no rotten words come out of your mouth, but only words that build others up. I can't think of any advice I would give to myself or anyone else about building a good name and a sterling reputation that would be smarter and wiser than saying, read God's instruction book and live by it. God teaches us how to build a good name. And he's given us, from Genesis to Revelation, instruction, help about how to build a good name. So developing a good name is the name of the game, not avoiding a bad name. Proverbs 3 says, My son, keep my commandments, for you will find favor and a good reputation in the sight of God and man. So Swanville was long ago and far away. But Swanville is here now. Swanville is Palm Desert. Or wherever else we happen to be at any time. Because whether it's Swanville or Palm Desert, life's hard here. None of us can make it alone. We need each other. But if you lose your good reputation, you lose your good name, and people can't trust you, you just can't live here. 